0: It's Friday, January the 13th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI TV. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. up on the show today. It's the first news panel of the year. It's the first news panel in our new studio and Joyda Gupta and Michelle McQuigg will be in it with me riding shotgun. Today they'll discuss Canada's plans to purchase the F-35 fighter jets. We'll take a closer look at Ontario giving pharmacists more prescription authority and We'll consider the government's new tax credit for home renovations that has, let's call it an accessibility slant. But before you get any of that, let's give you the top story of the day. The House of Commons Transport Committee met with airline executives to obsess what happened during the chaotic travel season. WestJet Vice President of Government Relations, Andrew Gibbons, says the airlines aren't the only ones to blame. It could be because the customs hall was too full and the plane had to sit on the tarmac. It could be because NAV Canada had a staffing issue. It could have been because of an airport failure. Minister of Transport, Omar Algebra, says that new policies must be put in place.
1: We will also make other changes to the regulations to improve its efficiency. I hope to be able to announce changes and introduce
2: legislation in the coming months.
0: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau feels what happened over the holidays has necessitated updating the passengers' Bill of Rights. Just this past holiday season uh, presented some uh, real new challenges, uh, unfortunately, for families. Uh, And we are absolutely going to make sure that the uh, Bill of Rights for uh, air passengers is uh, strengthened and expanded uh, to make sure that we're uh, continuing uh, to make sure that Canadian travellers are protected. NDP transport critic Taylor Backrack suggested what the obligations of airlines should be.
1: Personally, that the airlines should not only refund people the money they're out of pocket, refund them the cost of their tickets in the original form of purchase, but they should proactively pay the compensation that they, that they should under the air passenger protection regulations.
0: Over to Quebec, where Provincial Police say at least three employees are missing after an explosion at a propane facility north of Montreal. Emily Javesky has the latest.
3: Sergeant Eloise Cossette says three employees of the facility in Saint-Roch-de-Lachigan, Quebec, have not been seen since the Thursday morning explosion. She says police have started an investigation into the cause of the blast and are dealing with a large scene that will require several days to comb through. Police have not ruled out that other people could have been on the site when the explosion occurred. They say the fire was brought under control Thursday evening and about 50 people who were forced from their homes have been allowed to return. Emily Joveski, the Canadian Press.
0: And one more story for you. Human Rights Watch is criticizing Canada's policies on climate and immigration. The organization also identified a poor record on its treatment of Indigenous peoples. Don Kelly shares some of the findings.
3: Human Rights Watch says more than two dozen First Nations
0: remain under long-term drinking water advisories, despite Prime Minister Justin
3: Trudeau's promise to bring that number down to zero. The New York-based rights group also says Canada's border agency continues to operate without oversight, detaining some asylum seekers indefinitely. The group's annual World Report censures the government for its G20-leading public financing of fossil fuel projects and inadequate measures to support First Nations in adapting to the impacts of climate change. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press.
0: That is your look at the news. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you track us down on Facebook. Yesterday we asked you if they were brought back, would you buy a Canada savings bond? 82% of you said yes and 18% of you said no. Got a bunch of very efficient, invested, investor-minded people watching and listening to the show. 82% of you said yes, 18% of you said no. Today's daily poll, this will come up a little bit in tech trends later in the show and Alex Smythe will be posing a question about interior decoration and design in segment seven so it begs this question do you favor wireless technology over wired technology yes or no as I'm currently operating on a wireless mouse Kind of liking it, kind of liking the freedom, but I do like my stuff being connected together sometimes. It's much harder to lose things if stuff uh, plugs into something and there's a wire to follow around my apartment. So I'm a bit of a yes or no. I'm officially riding the fence on this one. Let's see what Alex Smythe has to
4: say about this. Alex, when it comes to technology, wired or wireless? Definitely wired, Dave. I'm one of those people that can't stand the number of different devices I now need to charge in my daily life. that I didn't have to five, 10, 15 years ago. I have a wired mouse because I think having to charge or use batteries for a mouse is ridiculous when it can be plugged in and it's always gonna be beside the computer. My headphones have a wire on them because I really don't wanna put up with the hassle, oh no, my headphones have died and I can't listen to anything when I could just plug it into the the iPod or, or, or listening device, whatever it is, the phone and listen to music when I want to not having to worry about that dying as well as the the phone that I'm listening to dying. So I'm very much give me less of this wired stuff. Then it's also you you haven't even touched on the connection issues. Oh, everything has to go through Bluetooth. How many connections are going to really work with this device pairing with my phone or other smart devices or it, it gets to be too much. I want simplicity. I want things, okay, it works when I plug it in. That's good enough for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Also, wire management is nice there. If you're going to live this wired life, knowing how to send your wires in the right places makes a big difference. Alex, stay right there because we'll come back to you for weather in just a moment. But because Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta are in studio with me right now, may as well drag them into the Daily Poll as well. Michelle, what do you think? Wired or wireless life?
3: I'm a wireless girl, I'd have to say. I, I... I'm a, deeply averse to clutter, so wires can make me crazy on that front alone. Uh, I, I like the convenience of being able to run around without it. My I, every, I try to limit the number of connections I do have for those things I have at home that are wired. They've got a dock set up, so I only have one real wire to play with on a daily basis. Uh, wireless vacuums, I run around with a Bluetooth speaker all the time, I'm clearly a a wireless kind of girl.
0: Yeah, I didn't even consider the vacuum side of this conversation. Oh, you never, oh. if you go yeah. stick vac, you're yeah. never going back. Yeah, it's that's a very, exactly. very good point. Joita, what about you? Wired or wireless life?
2: You know what? I do prefer my devices wireless. To be honest with you, less clutter, less things to keep track of. You lose a wire, and suddenly you're dashing around trying to find a replacement. Uh, so it is convenient not to have to worry about the wire in the equation. With that said, there are instances when I prefer to have a wire attached. Um, I have AirPods, but then I also worry about losing those AirPods, oh, yeah, especially if I'm mm. using them on public transit. You lose one AirPod, it's a goner. So it all depends on the situation. I think uh, you don't want to be caught. Out without uh, wires especially when it comes to devices like headphones you don't want to be caught out without a charger for your laptop but if on a day-to-day basis you can get rid of some of those wires and some of that clutter I'm all for it
0: Right on, guys. Thank you for your input on this one and we'll hear plenty more takes from you over the course of the next 45 minutes on the show. I want to remind you, if you want to vote on the poll, you can find it at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates.
4: Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. We'll start in St. John's, Newfoundland where it's sunny Becoming a mix of sun and clouds later, the high is minus three and it's feeling like minus 19. Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's snow starting this morning, then turning to rain. So there's two centimeters of snow along with up to 20 millimeters of rain expected. Wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour, a high of 10 degrees is the projected and there is a rainfall warning in effect for the area. To Montreal, Quebec, There's heavy snow today with up to 10 centimeters expected to fall. Wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus two and the wind show is minus 11. And then in Montreal, there is that winter storm warning in effect. Over to Ottawa, Ontario, There's heavy snow expected today with up to 15 centimetres falling. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometres per hour. The high is minus 5 with a wind chill of minus 12. And there is a winter storm warning in effect for the uh, Ottawa area. Here in Toronto, Ontario, there's snow flurries in the morning, then cloudy in the afternoon with a possible chance of snow up to 2 centimetres expected to fall. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometres per hour. The high is minus 3 and it's feeling like minus 11. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it is cloudy with a chance of snow this morning, but then clearing up in the afternoon. The high is minus 9, but feeling like minus 22. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with a chance of snow, wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, the high is minus 6, feeling like minus 21. Over to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it is a mix of sun and clouds, the high is minus 9, and the wind chill is minus 20 to Calgary, Alberta, where it is quite a lovely day. It's a mix of sun and clouds, and the high is five degrees. Very rare for a January weather forecast. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, it is a mix of sun and clouds. A bit colder, it's a high of minus eight, feeling like minus 17 with that wind chill. There was also a special air quality statement in effect for the area. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's sunny. Becoming a mix of sun and clouds this afternoon, the high is minus 19, and feeling like minus 33 with that wind chill. To Vancouver, BC, it's winter time, so you're going to expect more and more rain. So today, there's rain off and on today, and up to five millimeters is expected to fall. 10 degrees is the high. And finally, Victoria, BC, there's showers throughout the day as well, and the high there 11 degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Forecast from Environment Canada.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, the news panel takes off as we discuss Canada's plan to purchase the F-35 fighter jet. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. It's Friday. It's the first hour of the show. You know that means it's weekly news panel time. Do I really need to welcome Joita and Michelle back in here? I may as well, just for the sake of it, even though you already heard from them during the first segment of the show. Hey, good morning, Joita.
2: Good morning,
3: Dave, and Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you too, and Michelle McQuigg, Happy New Year to you.
3: Happy New Year, Dave, and everybody else. Nice to be here in the brand new studio.
0: Brand new fancy Studio 7 at AMI. Let's jump right into our first topic. Canada is officially buying the F-35 fighter jet to replace the aging fleet of CF-18s. The price tag? $19 billion. Minister Anita Anand detailed the agreements.
1: Canada is acquiring a new fleet of 88 state-of-the-art F-35 fighter jets through an agreement that we have finalized with the United States government and Lockheed Martin with Pratt and Whitney.
0: Anand discussed the urgency to make this purchase.
1: With Russia's illegal and unjustifiable invasion of Ukraine and China's increasingly assertive behavior in the Indo-Pacific. This project has taken on heightened significance, especially given the importance of interoperability with our allies.
0: The defense minister elaborated further on how geopolitics impacted the decision.
1: We need to ensure that, especially in this changing global strategic environment, we are fulfilling our obligations to NORAD and to NATO. And never has it been more clear that this is the moment that we need to ensure the defense of our country, the protection of our country, including our Arctic.
0: For a little bit of context here, Canada initially agreed to buy a fleet of F-35s way back in 2010. Michelle, you picked this story. Why did it resonate with you?
3: Well, uh, I know the defense file can be a bit more of a niche one sometimes. Not everyone follows it as closely as others, but this is an interesting political situation. you alluded to the fact that this dates back to 2010 and, and this what we saw this week, in fact, brings that file back full circle. Uh, There was a huge controversy that caused no end of headaches for the Harper government back in the day when they initially announced that they had sole-sourced a contract for the F-35. That was eventually scrapped. Justin Trudeau swore at one point that we would never, ever buy F-35s. But this process led to the same outcome through a very different path. There was definitely a bidding process. Uh, Boeing at one point was eliminated, leaving Lockheed Martin in contention with one other bidder. There were all kinds of speculations about which course that would mean for the for the army, and now the the decision has been made. or I should say the air force rather. So now that the decision has been made. I think it, I just thought it would be an interesting time to revisit the, this this issue that goes well beyond just a simple defense spending uh, mm-hmm. measure. This has ramifications for how, what kind of air force we want to have. Uh, the, the armed forces are, of course, are an institution in a bit of a flashpoint at the moment. Uh, one could say they're even in a state of crisis depending on which issue you're looking at. There's a lot going on with this particular file and I thought in light of the fact that this saga has appeared to have come to an end at last, might be a good time to check in on it.
0: Joita, let's start with the decision to make the purchase. What's your reaction to this decision and agreements finally coming through?
2: Yes, it's funny how that happens. Eh? In 2010, we had this, um, the, sole, the sole sourcing contract with the Harper government and then Justin Trudeau swore up and down, no, 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 we'll never buy F-35s and here we are. 10 years on, uh, buying F-35s. And on the face of it, it does look like it might be a good decision because of the interoperability, the fact that our allies in NATO and NORAD both make use of the same type of planes, so it makes it possible for them to coordinate, to share information. Uh, And that's uh, one of the ways in which to pick up on what Michelle was saying earlier about the broader implications. It not only has implications for our Air Force, but it also has implications for how we deal with our allies in NATO, and it strengthens our relationship with the US. I mean, it's really, in some ways, preserving the status quo, because we've been Purchasing aircrafts and fighter jets from the U.S. for upwards of fifty years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were uh, flying Spitfires and De Havillands, which are European and British planes, fifty years ago during the Second World War. But you've really seen a bit of a switch there. Um, I think the 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 difference but now compared to ten years ago is that there was a vetting process, there was some competition. Saab, which is the, the Swedish company that was being considered, is not in NATO as far as I know. So there are implications there as well. Um, and of course the the hope is that ten years on with a vetting process, with the competition uh, aspect considered, uh, we're making a much better decision. The question I think really comes up Dave and Michelle probably is should we have actually just bought the planes 10 years ago I think Anita Anand alludes to that as well so um, you know on the surface it does seem like it might be a good decision only time will tell but I think the question that a number of people are posing now is after all of this should we have just bought the plane 10 years
0: ago (laughs) yeah what happened to the last 13 years what do we do with that as we as we examine it let's be fair to my knowledge of uh, fighter jets is nil it goes as far as (laughs) top gun maverick and like that's about it I'll, I'll, i'll i'll go as far as to say that if this is the standard operating fighter jet of the american air force then fair enough then let's use that as a canadian air force because that's just that's just what what's being used by our strongest strategic partner and elsewhere in NATO. That makes some sense to me. The price tag is the price tag. There's not a lot of quibbling about that if you really get down to it. Now, there have been some concerns in terms of the F- F-35 being more of an attack jet rather than a defense jet, which could tell you something about uh, the priority of the Canadian Air Force. But certainly geopolitics has changed. 13 years ago, uh, Russia was not actively invading a European country and Arctic sovereignty was not quite the same level of concern that that it is today but there were concerns Michelle raised about this particular type of jet and as mentioned top gun Maverick is about my key knowledge on this point but <laughs> what do you make of those concerns potentially being addressed honestly
3: here? I'm goose to your Maverick I, I, I got oh, nothing well on, done on fight or death like yeah I'm with you on this in that I'm, I'm relying on on the expertise of those who have some, which I do not. Um, the interoperability that Joita referenced was was a big selling point, uh, according to Lockheed Martin, the fact that they can coordinate and, and communicate seamlessly, not only with other F-35s, which are heavily in use in the American Air Force, so that would be a very crucial ally point of communication, but with other comparable fighter jets, including the Swedish-made ones, the Gripen, I believe they're called, Gripen E, uh, that we were considering purchasing. That was the other bidder that was left. Now, that, that's sort of one issue that I, I would have wondered and liked to have heard a little bit more about, uh, and that the Swedish proposal, when it was tabled, actually had a lot of interesting incentives around pumping money back into the Canadian economy. They wanted to have them built and managed here mm, in Canada. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
3: so I thought those were really interesting uh, threads slash strands, or hybrid words, I like making those up to you, that just, uh, I would have I would have loved to see a little bit more uh, discussion about that in the public eye. But that yeah. said, uh, you know clearly there was a bidding process, which there was not last time. Uh, we lost a decade, that's just the way the cookie crumbled in that particular sense. Um, I do think when we're talking about 19 billion dollars, it makes sense not to have a sole source contract, so on that, on those grounds alone I don't really object to the fact that there was a bit of a delay, or a lot of a delay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has had implications for military recruitment, which we know has been a big issue, um, one of many things that are plugging the military these yeah. days. So. Uh,
0: yeah. let's let's get to that because I think our expertise as uh, arms arms dealers is is so low that there's not a lot we can offer here but Smart. we but we certainly can offer a little bit of perspective on some of the issues that are plaguing the armed forces Michelle you mentioned recruitment we saw historically low accru- recruitment levels going on the last couple of years specifically once Russia invaded Ukraine I can see how someone might be a little less willing to just join the military and say I might go get sent off somewhere in Eastern Europe that seems a little bit unpleasant uh, joining the military during times of peace is a little bit uh, more pleasant although still quite unpleasant having friends in the navy who spend six months a year on the ocean not 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 the easiest life in the world (laughs) itself on that front but there's also of course the issue of course sexual misconduct in the military joita is it possible to separate some of those lingering issues within the military from military procurements
2: yes and no um I know it's tempting to talk about sexual misconduct in the same breath as talking about fighter jet purchases, but we're not purchasing fighter jets to reward or punish uh, the culprits responsible for sexual misconduct. The the reason we're buying new fighter jets is because our existing fleets needs to be replaced and also because um, it lends us certain strategic advantages in dealing with our NATO allies and because the geopolitical situation has undergone significant changes. You've alluded to, Dave, with the um, you know, with the, the war in Ukraine and other uh, and, and just China being very aggressive in the Indochina region. All of those factors, I think, are more responsible for the decision. So I, I hesitate to link the sexual misconduct to this in any way, shape or form. Uh, whether it's had an impact on recruitment. Um, I, I couldn't say with any certainty one way or the other. I mean, there could be a plethora of reasons it, it's why... It's also
0: totally right? Like, nobody was running to a recruitment station this that's, week that's after That's the thing. Like,
2: I, I mean, you know, the, what, what is it that they say? Correlation isn't causation. Mm-hmm. So I hesitate to mm-hmm. draw a line there. Um, the one thing I will note is, and it's always interesting to consider the perspective of uh, activists, especially peace activists like uh, No Fighter Jets. They've been pretty vocal uh, criticizing the purchase, saying that you're, you're putting billions of dollars into military spending. Lockheed Martin actually had a pretty sketchy reputation uh, uh, about 10 years ago. They were in a lot of hot water. They weren't believed to be the best, um, the best option. Uh, but I, I'm, I am given to understand that some of those issues have been dealt with in the in the next 10 years as well. So the company perhaps has managed to clean up its reputation as well. And really, if you want to take the the point of view of some of the activists involved with no fighter jets. Uh, they would likely be making the same objections if we'd gone with a different vendor. So yeah, I, any, I think any, any so fighter
0: jet purchase sure. would have ticked so, them but off.
2: But it is, it is worth considering that this is a decision that not everyone is going to be happy with for a plethora of reasons, but I hesitate to say in any way, shape, or form that it's necessarily got to do with some of the other issues that yeah. are systemic and endemic to our military.
0: Yeah, Joey, and I agree with you completely. A procurement issue has nothing to do with some systemic issues that exist in the military. Now, single-source bids on the previous iteration of this deal, that is a different conversation, right? Like, that could speak to maybe some habits that might exist about sourcing materials, but in terms of the two contemporary issues that are really pressing the military, those can be separated from procurement completely. Michelle, you raised it, but what do you think?
3: I agree. I mean, I I feel that both infrastructure and equipment issues and the the, the cultural systemic issues that we've heard about from the military might both play into some of the recruitment challenges, but I do think they are separate and discrete issues and need to be treated as such. Uh, one point that I will raise though that we haven't talked about yet is that there's also been a lot of push in military circles for us to reinvest in our naval facilities oh, yes. and equipment. Oh yes, oh yes. And uh, so the, this question about the, the, the Air Force potentially taking priority or, or, or maybe not, uh, we're not too sure yet whether they're going to forge ahead with implementing improvements and changes to both the Navy and the Air Force. And if they do, that raises questions about about how it's all going to be
0: paid for. Well, there's a very litigious shipbuilder on the East Coast who I will not mention by oh, name but who might, be listening to this, who might be listening to this conversation. They own a lot of newspapers though so, you know, one day <laughs> I might work for them. Um, <laughs> let's uh, talk about Canada's role in the world here. I burn no bridges. Uh, let's talk about Canada's role in the world on this because it's not simply the purchase of these fighter jets. It's been a very hawkish take in terms of the rhetoric during the war in Ukraine, the rhetoric on Iran, rhetoric on China, certainly uh, sending what we'll call military-adjacent equipment to Haiti during a humanitarian crisis down there, supplying the Saudi Arabians for their very unjust war in Yemen that's going on right now. What does this, to say largely about Canada's role in the world that perhaps we're not the peacemaker that we were once perceived as?
2: No, I mean Canada's had this reputation as a, as a peacekeeper and, and as a non-aggressive participant on the world stage, but I am I, I take the view that it's a lot of public public relations and it's not really borne out by facts uh Canada is very much entrenched in in nato and uh on side with its allies um but I think one of the things that's interesting to note about Canada is that we're not really setting the agenda in any way uh when it comes to foreign policy one really gets the sense that Canada is following the lead of some of the superpowers i mean if and often getting um Sh- you know, shoved around by some of the the bigger powers. If you remember the whole situation with Meng Wanzhou and and uh, you know the two Michaels being arrested, it doesn't really make you. G- it doesn't really give you the impression that Canada is particularly dominant on the world stage. We're kind of landing somewhere in the middle, I suppose, mm-hmm. and and taking our taking our marching orders or f- uh, following suit, uh, depending on largely what uh, American for- foreign policy is. I mean, this. Fighter jet purchase, as Michelle pointed out, one of the the attractions was that uh, the interoperability. Operability. I will manage to say that by the end of the show. Uh, it's <laughs> not easy. A lot easy. of
0: syllables there. A it's lot of a lot of syllables. syllables.
2: Uh, but I think the fact that it, it, it dovetails so well with uh, the American Air Force, I think, it was a, a big selling point. So I think it really goes, goes to show you where we're landing in terms of this particular issue.
0: Yeah, it, it does make me recall some conversations that were had during NATO meetings this year about spending two percent. We want you to spend two percent of your uh, GDP on military spending, your government spending on military spending. Well, it makes it a lot easier to get. To that number when you're spending a 19 billy on these uh, on these airplanes, but certainly it, it does imply that Canada, if, even if they're a bit of a passenger or riding shotgun rather than driving the ship or steering the ship, sorry, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but <laughs> but it seems as though there's an eagerness. To at least be seen in some leadership uh, capacity as as the temperature on geopolitics gets turned up. But Michelle, what do you make of this decision in relation to Canada's role in the world?
3: Yeah, I, I see it as either trying to either trying to advance our status on the global stage incrementally, or even just maintain the status quo. Uh, I think in certain circles, the kinds that that I suspect are, are pretty excited about this announcement, or at least satisfied with it. Uh, There's been a perception that Canada has allowed some of its global standing to lapse a little bit You've heard uh, the the discussions around whether or not we should be pursuing a seat on the Security Council of the UN for instance (laughs) And that kind of stuff is all related and then I think some people feel that Canada might have lost some face internationally and uh, in those circles military spending and strength often enter the conversation so I feel like this is kind of Canada's way of, of trying to either regain a little bit of lost international luster for those who feel it should be framed that way, or maintain our existing status. I don't think Canada would ever wish to compromise its alignment with things like NORAD and NATO. Um, And I do suspect that uh, upgrading the equipment to the degree that we're doing is is a necessary step at this point in order to maintain those relationships. I
0: just hope these planes have been tested to fly in the Arctic because I don't want to end up in an Ottawa LRT situation. Hey, we bought trains from Brazil and they don't work in the winter. Um, Let's ground this conversation. (laughs) Coming up next, pharmacists in in Ontario have been given increased prescription authority. We'll uh, take a closer look at that one. This is the Now News panel on (laughs) AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and the Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Ontario is granting more authority to pharmacists when it comes to prescriptions. Pharmacists can prescribe medications for 13 different ailments, including rashes, pink eye, insect bites, urinary tract infections. The new service is also in addition to pharmacists being able to renew prescription medications for blood pressure, diabetes, and asthma. Joita, what angles do you want to explore in this conversation?
2: Well, I think it's a conversation that we've been having here on the panel on an ongoing basis. We've talked about the crisis in the healthcare system and the doctor shortage. We've touched on that one a couple of times. And I think this is an interesting idea that is being tried across the country, not only in Ontario, but also in places like BC and PEI, which might be a way to deal with the doctor shortage. So instead of having to go to a doctor and get a prescription for your rash or uh you know for some other issue, minor issue you can now go to a pharmacy and have the pharmacist help you with that so is this a good thing is it going to alleviate some of the burden on the healthcare system or are we just papering over the cracks i think it's a it's a an, a good idea to punt around not least because i can imagine for for a lot of people with disabilities getting to a local pharmacy and I'm speculating but I, I would hazard a guess that getting to a local pharmacy is probably a lot easier mm-hmm. than making your way over to a family mm-hmm. doctor if you're lucky enough to have one.
0: Yeah I should have mentioned in the intro a little under half the pharmacies in Ontario have taken up uh, this this opportunity and that number is at about 2300 or so right mm-hmm. now we've taken this up so that's that does imply that there's a certain uh, uptake that's going on here in the early days of this policy being rolled out and it certainly makes sense that pharmacies are not places to buy milk and buy chips right for like that's what pharmacies have somewhat become but they are still a place where you can get some medical assistance and medical treatment we certainly saw in Ontario the utilization of pharmacies in part of the vaccine rollouts which ended up being a really effective way to get more needles in people's arms so we already entrust Pharmacists to a certain degree, and let's be clear: people who experience urinary tract infections, they know when they've got one. They they don't need a doctor to tell them. Like if they're if you're if they're a common occurrence for you, you know what it is. If you have a history of them, you go to the pharmacist. Your records are there. Hey, I need this antibiotic. And it it seems like there's some simplicity to this that makes a lot of sense. Michelle, your reaction to this this development? I
3: have to say, I'm a big fan. I think this makes a lot of sense. I'm delighted by the, the list that that now qualifies in Ontario. Like you said, Dave things like a UTI, it, just, it saves a step uh, of having to contact a doctor if you're lucky enough to get a same-day appointment, you're still probably not looking at getting the prescription until the next day. You just save a whole lot of time. The disability angle is a good one too, Joita, in that I think, especially in smaller centers, pharmacists have much better opportunities to develop relationships mm-hmm. with individual people over time. So I think that can really go a long way into, into delivering healthcare. So I'm all for expanding their role in the process and in the system. Um, on condition that they're being compensated accordingly. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, because, I, I, I don't know, there's been, my colleague Amy Smart at Canadian Press uh, did a, a good story looking at some of the increase to pharmacist's workload generally, and it, it started during the pandemic, it's happening elsewhere, uh, Joita alluded to BC and PEI, uh, pharmacists have had a little bit more autonomy in Alberta for a while now, um, but they they. They like it, by and large, Uh, it gives them a lot more job satisfaction, and they're they're not just, you know, counting pills, they're using some more diagnostic skills, but... Compensation is a big one and and not all models have been successful in addressing that. So it's something I would like to see them recognize for the additional work we're asking them to take on.
0: We could probably utilize the expression silver bullet as one of the most uh, common expressions that we use on the show in terms of saying something is not a silver bullet. When we're talking about strain on the healthcare system, to simply pass something off to the pharmacist is not a singular way of solving the problem. But Joita, how do you put this into the broader context of what we're experiencing in the healthcare system right now?
2: yeah I mean I think it's definitely a step in the right direction look if you don't have a family doctor now, you're not going to get one magically because they shift over some routine care <laughs> yeah. to the pharmacist yeah. around the corner. Uh, but I do think there are some advantages to having this program rolled out, especially in rural parts of the country yeah. and indigenous yeah. communities where, and I still like my original idea, which I floated here a couple of weeks ago before the holidays about recruiting from indigenous and rural communities to uh, to have doctors from those communities so they would go back and practice there. I still like that idea. Um, I don't think this is um, a Panacea—it's not going to solve all our problems. Uh, but we've also seen a lot of quibbling about money and who's responsible for healthcare. And the first ministers' meeting uh, that happened a few weeks ago. Uh, so you know, it, it is a creative solution. I'm not going to knock it and say it's a bad idea. But it's not going to be uh, the be all and end all. And Michelle's point about overburdening and overworking pharmacists is a really good one. The implementation is key because. Um, Pharmacists uh, did complain about acute burnout during the pandemic and thereafter, and being short-staffed, and feeling like they wanted to quit. And so are we gonna learn from those lessons, or are we just moving
3: things around on the chessboard and (laughs) not really accomplishing anything? They are healthcare workers, they're not. Consider, when people think of healthcare workers, pharmacists might not come to mind, but they are workers in our healthcare system and important ones, and that whole sector is facing massive burnout.
0: Yeah, the strain, the pressure, is the pressure irrespective of who is facing it, and Precisely. certainly, I don't know how oftentimes you guys are wandering around pharmacies, I enjoy it, it's nice to walk up and down the aisles. <laughs> you do, there's Dave. always, there's <laughs> always a lineup at the pharmacy desk, so it's not as if the individuals working behind those desks are not already working tremendously hard, Right. so to simply mm-hmm. say, okay, you pick up the Slack for us so we can get more people walking into the clinic with acute needs well that that again is not necessarily going to solve any issues unless of course you're willing to pay people more hire more people right there's there's like fundamentally there's still going to be a financial component to this that needs to be addressed in a longer term and Michelle you just jumped into it there but if you want to elaborate a little bit more in regards to sort of the continuity of care the continuum of care the holistic way we need to be looking at a system reform yeah
3: like the, the way I look at this whole thing is it, it would be comparable to someone sort of rezoning traffic lanes and just sort of redirecting traffic in more sensible directions. So I I perceive a potential benefit if GPs and family doctors are facing fewer appointments for things like UTIs or pink eye or, or, or things that are pretty routine, if they now have more appointment capacity to take care of issues that more genuinely need their attention, uh, that is how I would foresee the system working, and how I'm sure the analysts conceived of the whole thing. Mm. Um, and that, if that works according to plan, then I think that would be great, and I think that actually has a lot of merit, and and could potentially ease a lot of burdens. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, like you said, implementation is key, and as of in Ontario anyway, this system only began to kick into gear 13 days ago and yeah. really only got going uh, this past week. Mm-hmm. So it's far too early to see how it's working um, but I, I do think one can look maybe to a little bit to Alberta where our pharmacists have had a bit more autonomy. That's been in place now for a few years and it there seems to be a few complaints, from what I can gather, of how that's working over there. So.
0: Joita, you raised an email to us about the continuity of mm. care. What what impact do you think this could have?
2: Yeah, this is actually one of the things that I am concerned about. I know that it's so nice to be able to now go to a pharmacy and deal with that rash, as opposed to having to trek all the way to your family doctor again, if you're lucky to have one. Uh, but <laughs> you keep raising
0: this point, and I feel very seen. Uh,
2: but uh, but the the point is, when you when you do have a family doctor and you do go in to talk about that rash, it does open up a conversation about you know you're due for a mammogram or you know you should be getting a colonoscopy have you gotten your shingles vaccine
0: now i'm feeling very sick so
2: you know there there are these bigger questions and an ongoing relationship that you have with your primary care provider that's why family physicians are so important it's not just a nice thing to have it is actually very important especially as the population ages and you get older your health complications uh, your health needs become more complicated you need someone who will check in with you on an ongoing basis you know doing an annual physical at the very least. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of thing that gets neglected when you get into this 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 stop gap. Oh, I have a rash. I'm going to go to the pharmacy, get a prescription, pop a couple pills. Hopefully, you know, that'll be the end of that. You lose that bigger relationship. And the worry that I have is that a lot of people will just I mean, nobody wakes up one morning and says, "You know what? I really feel like I want to have a colonoscopy. Like nobody does that. And so the worry that I have is that because a lot of routine and preventative care will likely fall by the wayside, what you're going to end up seeing is a lot of people presenting to emergency rooms with very acute problems yeah. that went undiagnosed.
3: So can I challenge that for a little bit, though? Sure. Even though I'm still dying over your mental <laughs> yes. imagery. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there, especially within certain communities, in the disabled community being one of them, there is a, a, a complication dynamic at play with with caregivers and and doctors in particular. And I know that, especially in smaller communities, a lot of people have found pharmacists to be a little more uh, understanding and better able to build those relationships. They also have the benefit of having a lot of your not necessarily medical records but your prescription history and such right there, which can be quite revelatory. Um, So I would argue that pharmacists do in fact have capacity to build some longer term relationships, perhaps in ways that doctors cannot, but that still might offer a lot of Mm -hmm. benefits. Uh, Those benefits might be a bit more lost on those of us who live in Toronto and roll into shoppers and might not see the same person on duty all the time. But that's not always how the system is going to be delivered.
2: Yeah, but also Michelle, there's questions of training. Like There are things that a pharmacist is just not trained to do or things that they may not catch or questions they may not even think to ask you. That's why it's so important to have access to a a, a healthcare provider because they can ascertain problems before we can ascertain them. Mm -hmm. Often when people um, go to a doctor, it's when they're experiencing symptoms, but often if you have a good family physician, for example, or if you have an ongoing relationship with someone, they will hopefully reach out to you about preventative measures and talk to you about uh, you know a more holistic way of being which I don't think a pharmacist is really going to do.
3: I agree in in broad strokes about the importance of having a family care provider uh, I just feel that it perhaps there's a bit of a middle ground in terms of the relationship building between our, our common perception of pharmacists and our common perception of doctors.
0: Yeah, it would be nice if there was some sort of referral system that went the other way right? That if the pharmacist yeah. saw you came in with pink eye four times in three months okay maybe we need to get you somewhere to go see a physician because this is more chronic than necessarily, okay, you've got a dirty pillow or mm-hmm. you uh, went the wrong way uh, in, in, in in a room and uh, something. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna yeah. to leave this alone. I'm going to leave this alone. I'm going to stop talking about pink eye because people are eating <laughs> breakfast. Um, let's. You may find this hard to believe, guys, but we're already a little tight on the time side. But under the idea that we all think this is at least a somewhat good idea, how do you think these changes could potentially go further? Joita, what do you think?
2: Well, just the one suggestion from me um, I was surprised to see that uh, renewals for contraception was not included in Ontario it is in other places and I think that's a big missing piece um, and if they add that in I should be quite happy
0: moving forward. Michelle what about you if this were to go a little bit further how much further could it go or where would you take
3: it? Uh, I, I would not want to expand it a whole lot for a lot of the same reasons that Joita raised uh, there there might be a, some other issues that could be added to the list but I wouldn't want to see it balloon into a, a list of, you know, 45 different things the pharmacists would be equipped to deal with. We're at 13 in Ontario right now. I think the lists are comparable elsewhere. Uh, expanding it by a few would be great. I like. I really like your referral idea, Dave. That would be a cool way to, to bridge some gaps and maybe, you know, invest them with a bit of additional... Um, Powers and protections, frankly. Yeah, um, if,
0: like, if, if a family doctor says to a local pharmacist, "Hey, listen, I've actually got space. I've, I've got room for two or three new clients that's it. this year," and the pharmacist can tell one of the regulars, "Hey, guess what? I know you've been looking for a family doctor. Here's an opportunity for you." Like there,
3: And that did, could go both ways. A yeah. doctor could say, "Listen, there's a fantastic pharmacist over at XYZ Rexall." You know, like the, the, Yeah.
0: Oh, there goes the water. Oh, Thankfully, no, it's, it's empty. empty. It's There, empty. All there we go. The,
2: the one other thing I'll add very quickly is around ethics. If your doctor if malpractices, you can. Complain to the College of Physicians. Uh, I don't know if you can complain about your pharmacist anywhere, right? At the moment,
3: I believe there's a college. There's a college. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. a friend of mine used to work
2: for them. There you go.
0: All right, there it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's put a, a pin in this one and move on. Coming up next, we'll consider the federal government's new to, uh, tax credit for home renovations. It has a bit of an accessibility slant to it as well. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. <laughs> Welcome back. It's the Now News panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Drew Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck for you. The federal government is offering a new tax credit to help make it easier for Canadians to care for adult relatives in their own homes. The multi generational home renovation tax credit took effect on January 1st for expenses related to building a secondary suite for a family member who is a senior or an adult with a disability. The credit will provide a 15% tax refund of up to $7,500. The secondary suite must be for a related adult over the age of 65 or living with a disability. And of course, you know what a relative means. That can mean a grandparent, a parent, child, grandchild, sibling, aunt, uncle, niece, or nephew. The secondary suite must be a self contained housing unit that includes a separate entrance bathroom kitchen and sleeping area and the home being renovated must be inhabited or reasonably expected to be inhabited within the next 12 months after the end of the renovation so once again guys we're sort of quibbling with new policy we don't really know what the outcomes are going to be but michelle what's your general feeling on this policy
3: huh. well i think it's an interesting idea um i i do Struggle a little bit with the fact that only homeowners would get to partake of this. I had that
0: thought as well. Yep
3: um, So that, that's something that jumped out at me uh, The expecting to be inhabited within 12 months also strikes me as a little interesting uh, in light of the fact that Scenarios change quite often. I, I don't object to in any way to, to restricting it to the use of, of a Family member although perhaps there's a little bit of room for expansion there, but the point is I I'm, mean I'm in, in, my, I'm in on board with anything that would keep it from just being set up as a, an investment property or something mm-hmm, else so that you could mm-hmm. just put on the open market. I, I, I have no problem with that kind of measure. Uh, I'm glad to see that there is some acknowledgement of the fact that we are seeing a, a significant rise in intergenerational homes. The last census actually bore that out in some detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think this is a case of, potentially, of, of data-driven policy that I on, on those grounds I certainly approve. Uh, is this one perfect? wouldn't think so
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah. but I
3: I don't think it's a bad
0: idea As, as, as a matter of course, as a concept the idea that says let's try to help people age in place or keep families relatively closer together is a good one that is totally fundamentally clear. a good idea. Keeping people out of institutions, so long as their family can care for them, is generally a good idea. But I have some similar quibbles to Michelle, which we'll get into in a second. Joita, what's your general reaction to the policy? Yeah,
2: overall, it's not a bad idea. I know the government has been pushing aging in place strategies, and indeed a number of people would like to stay in their homes and be close to their families. Uh, we've seen, especially during the pandemic, that nursing homes and long-term care facilities just were in very bad shape. Um, And, of course, for people with disabilities, we've had decades of struggle to deinstitutionalize and Mm -hmm. desegregate the disability community. All in all, this is a really good idea. Your point is a very good one, and it's well taken that it is an advantage that only accrues to homeowners, and we're not having conversations about the many challenges that face uh, seniors or people with disabilities who live in poverty, say in social housing, um, who could not have a caregiver move in with them and without risking their housing. So there are other issues that come into play here. But overall, this is actually not a bad idea. Um, And I think it's, um, there's no quibble that I have with it on the surface. The only thing I will say is, um, it's really important to remember that family members also have a finite amount of time and resources. So, are we just deferring the burden of elder care, or the, you know, are we just moving that onto onto family members mm-hmm. uh, without providing adequate community supports and services? And this model only really works if you have enough supports in the community to, to assist seniors and assist people with living uh, mm-hmm. with disabilities living in their communities otherwise what you end up with is family members doing the bulk of the caregiving and by family members research often shows that it's women who end up giving up careers or putting off life decisions mm-hmm. to take care of family members
0: Th- that's right is there adequate home care respite care is there a system in place that can get those resources to individuals you see uh, manitoba currently trying to rethink that completely in the way they're delivering home care which really was brought to board during the pandemic Pandemic, as people couldn't get home care. People who needed home care couldn't get home care. Mm-hmm. So we see that there are all kinds of gaps that exist here that go well beyond simply saying, okay, build a nice basement suite for grandma and yeah. we're all and we're all good to go. If you will both allow me, because I think we're all in unanimity here in regards to saying simply being a homeowner, only having the access to this kind of tax refund seems a little bit unjust. It seems like it may exclude some people. I want to zoom out here and talk about tax credits more broadly because it Where'd seems- means that governments love themselves a tax credit. My thought is that they're overused as a method to pursue a policy priority rather than other methods of delivering services. And I'll tell you exactly why. Because there's no accountability with a tax credit. Mm-hmm. If oh, you yeah. you hear some cash, there you go, do it yourself. You can't blame me for having a broken system because this was your fault. You built the bad, uh, the bad in-law suite in your basement. It's your fault the plumbing doesn't work. To me, tax credits are just this way of saying, okay, wealthier individuals get some stuff and we are not taking the brunt of criticism for offering poor services. Joita? Yeah,
2: but you also say, look, we're doing something. Yeah, exactly. We know that the underlying structural issues that if you want to talk about elder care and care for people with disabilities are very complicated. We don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. It's going to require a far more significant investment of time and money that maybe the government says, okay, the workaround for that is we're going to give you a tax credit and move that onto family members to take care of it. So it's a band-aid solution. But it's a solution that works because it benefits a subset of the population, i.e. anyone who's wealthy enough to own a home. But the one thing I have to say about this policy is, we remember that Canada has a decades of, of history in 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 privileging homeownership over rental housing. For example, right, so it's not alone in 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 providing a benefit mm-hmm. to homeowners because it's not the only policy. You can take money from your RSP to buy a home. You can't take money out of your RSP
3: to pay your rent. Just mm-hmm. saying,
0: mm-hmm. Michelle, the notion of tax credits. Yeah,
3: I I agree with every single point you raised. I I feel like this kind of measure caters well to a. a sec- of the electorate that governments are are keen to keep happy. Um, I think that it accrues a lot of benefit to them in that it's something that you opt into, and you need to be able to find the fact that these programs exist. They're not necessarily well publicized, so they're probably not even being used to their full extent. Mm. So government can make a financial commitment that it might not have to deliver in full. So I share all those more cynical takes. In this particular case, though, I will make one small devil's advocate argument, Please. and just say that it, again, we're, we're talking about one of our other perennial topics on this chip on the panel, and that's jurisdiction. They're wading into an Area that does technically fall under the province. And they, I could very well see anal- analysts saying, well, you know what, we're, we're only empowered to go so far, so this tax credit is the best that we can offer under the circumstances. And in this case, there is a little less action that the federal government might be able to take. But yeah, I definitely think that we've seen a significant rise in, in tax credits as a solution. We see it coming up all the time on the climate change file. Uh, we, we've seen it in, in, in this context, we've seen it in, in health. So yeah, I I I, I'd like to. I wonder if when there is an eventual change of regime, if we're going to see a bit less reliance on that, or if that's just going to keep ramping up in light of recent successes. Uh,
0: We've only got a minute left here on the clock as we're wrapping up this conversation. We are all urban dwelling Torontonians who do not live in standalone homes. That's okay, we're not complaining. We live how we live. Let's say our parents insisted that we go back and live with them. They want to be our wow. caregivers. What is the one thing you're insisting on your in-law suite? Joita, what do you need to have installed in your apartment?
3: Uh Wi-Fi.
0: Okay, Wi-Fi. <laughs> I was sweet gonna laundry. go I was gonna go dishwasher and suite laundry.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm 100, in, yeah, in suite laundry, big, dishwasher and AC, time for second. Oh,
0: Michelle knows how to live. That's, um, right. <laughs> that's all the time we have for today. Michelle, you have a lovely weekend. Same to you. Michelle McQuigg is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita you are the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. In 30 seconds, tell me what happened on the most recent episode.
2: Uh, we spoke to two people, Dr. Amy McPherson and Wesley McGee Saxton, uh, both from Holland Review Kids Rehab, about a new online portal that pr- provides resources on sex and disability. Always a hot topic.
0: Oh, it's always a great topic. And if folks want to check that one out, they can find you can find it on your favorite podcasting platform by searching for The Pulse on AMI-audio, or you can track it down on YouTube as... As well, that's all the time we have for the news panel. Don't worry, we'll be back in just a moment. Brock Richardson will stop by for a sports chat, and I've got the regional news update. This is the Now News Panel on AMI TV. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV.
1: The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.